can be seated. Turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I'm glad that I don't have to wait till I get to heaven to begin to experience the presence and the glory of God. We are praying in the days ahead for our revival services that are coming up. And that is what we are praying is that now we will be experiencing the glory of God in our hearts. Revival stems from the the heart of God's people having a deepened desire to experience God's glory. We've been talking about glory, and a couple weeks ago I began to preach on the glory life and how the glory life is a life of endurance. We endure the sufferings and the pains of this life because we have the glory that we look forward to. That What a day, glorious day that will be. But I want to remind you this morning that we'll never endure through the glory if we do not also experience the glory. I'm glad that the Christian life is not a life of just simply being a spectator. I'm glad that the Christian life is one of experience. You see, we talk about the Christian life and we talk about experience in the Christian life as if it's real, but when it comes to our actual experience and our actual enjoyment of the Christian life... Um, it looks like our, our, our heart hasn't told our face yet. It looks like we, we don't genuine, genuinely experience the blessedness and the joy and the glory that is involved in the Christian life. If you ask many Christians, they act and live their life as if Jesus isn't real, as if God isn't real. It's just something that we say with our mouth because we know that's what we're supposed to say. But I am so thankful, I am so grateful that my relationship with Christ allows me to personally, genuinely, really experience the presence and the essence of who God is. Whether it's in my own personal worship or when it's when we gather together for worship. When we look through the scriptures, there are many people who experienced the the presence of God, they experienced the glory of God. We might think of Moses, for example, as he's on the mountain and God says, I'm going to let my glory pass by, but I can't show you my full glory. I can only show you a part of it because you would be overwhelmed by the greatness of that glory. We would think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the glory of God in the vision in the temple. We think of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, as he experiences the the glory of the resurrected Christ, and he sees the brightness of his glory, and he is overwhelmed by it. All of these are individuals, but there are places in Scripture where the people of God gathered together experience the glory and the presence of God. One of these places is our text in 2 Chronicles And as we look at this, I want to remind you that the Christian life, unlike many things in our society, the Christian life is not to be a life of spectatorship. It is to be a life in which we are participants. It is to be, whether it's service. Many people talk about in the church today about how people come just to observe and watch other people do things. And it's certainly true in our service. It's certainly true in our Christian living But it is especially true in our worship, that our worship should never be just something that we're there and we're here to just observe. A danger for many of us, especially those of us who think we are active during a time of of worship, 
those of us who have roles to play in public worship, the danger for us is thinking that we are participants because we are busy. Do you know that one of the hardest places to worship is when you're preaching a sermon or when you're singing a song or when you're leading in service? Why? Because you are so focused and engaged on what you are doing that you can sometimes get your eyes off of Christ. You can get your eyes off of God. You can forget about worshiping. You might be in a place of service this morning and we have the, those who serve in our technical areas and do just such an amazing job. And some of us were talking about it in between services, about how easy it is to get so caught up in what you're doing that we're not worshiping. So when I talk about participation, I'm not talking about taking an active role in the service. I'm talking about actually participating in the worship that takes place in a worship service. We are to be participants, not merely spectators. Our society, I I was reading just this week about a book that was written bemoaning the fact that American society was becoming a group of, of observers rather than participants. The book was called Spectatoritis, and it was written in 1938. Can you imagine what they would say about our society today? How much more? They saw the trajectory then that we were headed on. And it's true not just in our society, but unfortunately it's true in our lives. And we hear sermons preached and we sing songs about the glory of God and being in the presence of God. But when it comes to actually experiencing that for ourselves, I want you to see in this passage some important truths. As God's people encounter in two aspects, in two places, the presence of the glory of God. And I want you to see that we are to experience this glory, the glory experience. The first thing that I want you to notice is is that our glory experience is initiated by God. It is on God's terms that we come into his presence for worship. I want you to begin with me in chapter 5. I'm going to back up to verse 13. Before we read the verse, let me quickly just give you a, a, a thumbnail synopsis of what took place before this. This is where Solomon has just built the temple. For years they've worshipped in the tabernacle and they've worshipped in, t- in a tent of worship that David set up. David, King David, desired to build the temple, but God told him, David, you're a man of war, and it's not going to be your task to build this temple. I'm going to give that task to your son Solomon. And David said, well, I can't build the temple myself. So David began the process of the preliminary work for building the temple. He had the plans laid out. He had the priests all organized. He had everything ready, everything but the building. In fact, it's possible that David had already begun collecting gold and silver and precious stones for the building of a place of worship for God all the way back before he was king when he was still just serving as a lieutenant to Saul. When he would would fight a battle and win and they would bring back wealth, he would put that wealth aside for the building of the temple. God says you can't do it. David said, okay, God, I understand. I'll still be a part of what you have to be done. And so when Solomon becomes king, one of his first projects is to build the temple as a place for God's presence to dwell among his people. Why did he do that? Because he, like David, understood the dramatic importance of God's presence being with his people, the relationship between God and his people. You see, God did not just save you and I for the purpose of getting us out of hell and taking us to heaven. He saved us to be in relationship with him, to be close to him. In fact, when we get to heaven, you know what's going to make heaven heaven is the fact that God is going to dwell with us. Revelation chapter 20, the city of God comes down from heaven 
and the tabernacle. God is going to tabernacle among his people. He will dwell among his people, and they shall be his people, and he will be their God. And now we get just a foretaste of that when we gather together. And that relationship is part of God's covenant. So Solomon builds this temple. And as the temple is finished, there's this great celebration that's taking place. The priests have begun to serve in the temple, and they're ready to begin the, begin the course and the, the worship that takes place. But look at verse 13. It came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. We won't take the time this morning, but we could go through and look at how God's people were prepared for this experience of glory. And notice the unity. Notice the oneness. They were as one to make one sound. When they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now just understand that the people are prepared. They're looking at this brand new temple that's just been built, the beauty of it, the glory of it. In today's value, it would have been extraordinarily just extraordinarily wealthy, the amount of gold and silver that was poured into this to build this temple, this house for God. And they're standing there and they're watching and the priests are ready to serve. And suddenly the glory of God fills the temple. And the priests are not able to enter in. The priests perhaps are a little concerned. Why, why, can't, why is this taking place? They're fearful about entering in because of the presence of God. If you understand what takes place in the presence of God, you would understand that they were, had reason to be fearful. They were cautious about entering into the presence of God. They may have remembered the young man that tried to put his hand out to steady the ark as they were moving it, and God struck him because he touched the ark. God is a holy God, and to enter into his presence is an amazing thing. It's the brightness of his glory. And when you read about it in Scripture, you see the light, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this brilliance, this, this unapproachable light, and they're fearful. How can we, how can we enter into the presence of God? They know the stories of Aaron's son who tried to go in and offer up strange fire before God and the results that took place. And they're fearful about going in. But notice Solomon's response. Notice what he says. And there's a phrase here that's a little different. It's a little unusual. Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. This cloud that has filled the temple, this cloud that conceals the the glory of God and contains the glory of God is not a bright cloud. It is a cloud of thick darkness. We don't often associate God with darkness. We often think of the passage, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We think of John chapter 1 where it speaks of the word and it says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And yet here in this verse, Solomon says, God has said, I will dwell in thick darkness. But Solomon says, I have built a house of habitation for him. What is the truth that's in this concept? If we go back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 21, we would see that it says that Moses approached God in the cloud of darkness. Psalm chapter 18 God says, I will make my secret place in the darkness, the pavilion, my pavilion. God resides 
in darkness. How, do we, how are we to understand that? We understand that through inapproachable light concealed in impenetrable darkness. Why does God conceal his glory in darkness? God could have sent a messenger to the people of Israel. God could have sent an angel to convey this message. And yet, he brings his glory to them. He comes in proximity to them. He comes close to where they are. He comes to their presence because he is not a distant God. He is a God who desires closeness with his people, just as he came to Adam in the garden and he walked in the cool of the day. But when he comes here, his glory is too much for us to stand. His glory is too much for our sinful minds and our sinful hearts. We cannot enter into his presence, but he comes to us. And to do that, he is willing to mask his, the fullness of his glory so that he might manifest his presence to his people. And so we have this inapproachable brightness, this inapproachable light that is God. He is light and in him is no darkness at all, but he masks that glory so that he might come close to us so that we might be in relationship with him. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? God, the brightness of his glory, Jesus, the fullness of the glory of God comes and takes upon himself flesh to mask his glory, to cover his glory so that he might come to where we are so that we might be in relationship with him. God initiates our opportunity to come into worship. When we come together this morning and we come together for worship, we are not here on our own terms. We are not here because we are righteous. We are not here because we're better than everybody that's not here. We are not here because we're good. We are here because of the one who is the extreme brightness of his glory, the glory of God, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, the old song says. And we are able to come into his presence. What a blessed truth that is, that we ought to understand that God has initiated this experience for us. God has initiated, God has taken the steps necessary for us to be able to come into his presence and experience his glory. You know what that does? That tells me that I ought to take it very seriously. If God went to the steps that he did, if God went to the extreme that he did, to come, he, Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Christ, says he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He took upon that shadow, that darkness, he veiled himself. If, if Christ did that, how important ought my experience of the presence and the glory of God be? When I come into worship, when we come together to worship, this ought to be a sacred, holy moment. When the high, as the psalmist says, the high praises of God are on our lips. It is a challenge for us because our mind is filled with so many things. Our mind is filled with the things that took place this week before us and the week that's to follow after us. And our minds are filled with all the problems and the burdens that we carry. But the glory of worship is that I turn my heart and my eyes and my mind away from those things and I focus them on the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And I experience it. It's not just something that I know. It becomes an experience. And it is something that is so valuable that God himself initiated and took the steps necessary. And so I come on his terms. 
If we come over to the end of chapter 6, we understand that coming on his terms means that my glory and my importance is excluded. We find that the priests can no longer enter in. We saw that at the the beginning of chapter 6. We see it at the beginning of chapter 7. That as Solomon speaks this truth to the people, God is going to dwell in thick darkness, but he has come to where we are in this temple, in this place of worship. He has come to reside with us. He begins to pray, and he prays about God's blessing, and he he has a wonderful prayer, but we come down to the end of the chapter in verse 1 of chapter 7. When Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. We sang a song just a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week or so ago. Do you remember when the fire fell? Well, the fire falls in this instance, and the fire falls upon the sacrifice Again, the crowd is standing outside, and they see the presence of God. And the presence of God might be a good thing, or it might be a fearful thing. And then the fire falls. Is God going to affirm? Is God going to accept our sacrifice? Is God going to accept the offerings that we have laid? And God's fire falls and consumes the offerings. You see, it was one thing to light a fire and burn the offering from man's point of view. But this was God's step. This was God sending the fire. And it was the presence of God coming. One of the great dangers that we have when we enter into worship is to come in on our own terms. We come and if things are as we would like them, if things are as we would like them, then we can worship. If the, if the music's just right, or if the choir gets it just right, or if the preacher gets it just right, or if this is just the way it ought to be, I remember a number of years ago, um, we had had an Easter program, and for the Easter program, we moved the pulpit aside. And so for the next couple of Sundays, it was a very large pulpit, and nobody, I'm saying pulpit, I'm from South Georgia, we call it a pulpit, okay? Y'all know what a pulpit is? This is a pulpit right here. It was a large pulpit, it was a big old honking pulpit. Nobody wanted to get a hernia moving it back into place. So for the next two Sundays, I just preached from my Bible. I didn't have a pulpit in front of me. And this lady came to me, and she said, Pastor, can we please move the pulpit back up? I just don't feel like I've been to church if there's not a pulpit on the platform. (laughs) Among other things that I would have liked to have said to her at that point, (laughs) you know, I, I... Preachers don't get ticked off, we get grieved in our spirit. (laughs) I was grieved in my spirit. And I wanted to say to her, wow, wouldn't it have been wonderful if Peter had had a pulpit on on Pentecost? Think how many people might have gotten saved. Only 3,000 got saved. If only he'd had a pulpit, perhaps even thousands more might have gotten saved. We have this idea of how things ought to be. We come to God... Beyond the exterior, beyond these external things of music or style or preaching style or or the way we're seated or all these sorts of things, beyond that is we come to God on our terms. We come to worship Him. And God says, there is no room for you in my worship. There's no room for me. There's no room for my pride. There's no room for my self-centeredness. I want it to be my way. When I come to the presence of God, is my mind focused on how well or how poorly man is doing things? Or is my mind focused on the perfection of Christ? Is my mind focused and my heart turned to the glory of God? 
We come into his presence and it's not on our terms. And God says it's not for you. You are, your glory is excluded, but my glory is to be exalted. Again, in verse 2 of chapter 7, the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled whose house? The Lord's house. When we come into the presence of God, it is his house. It is his dwelling place. Now, there is a very real sense in which each one of us as individuals are his dwelling place. But he also said that where at least two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. You know where Christ's dwelling place is this morning? It's within each of us, but it is also here. His glory is present. His presence is manifested. And that is what we are drawn to. And when we come... It is not for us to be exalted. It is for Christ alone to be exalted. I want you to see the reaction of the people. We saw Solomon's reaction when the temple was filled, but notice the people, and in this we see that the glory experience involves our entire being. The glory experience involves our entire being. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house First of all, there's a physical response. They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement. Now, I know we're all all different. We're all wired very differently. And some people express praise and worship in a variety of ways. Some do it vocally, as we'll see in a moment. Others may raise a hand. Others cry. Others may say amen and rejoice. Others fall to their knees. Nearly every time you find someone in Scripture that experiences the glory of God. They are on their face before God, but there is a physical response. You see, this begins with their minds. There has to be an understanding of the truth of who God is. This is not just some impressive stunt that has taken place. They know who God is. They have already been saying these same things, that he is good and his mercy endures forever. And when they see it, they understand. There's an understanding that takes place. And so our worship needs to be rooted in the truth of who God has revealed himself to be. But as we, as we understand that and know that, it has to go past just our mental assent. There are many people who would sit here today, and if I said this is true about God, they would say amen. If I said God is love, is that a, is that a doctrinal, biblical statement about God? Yes, it is. And we know that to be true. But I'm so glad that the Word of God, while it is written to address our minds, is primarily written to address our hearts. It speaks to our hearts. It moves us. And it's not just an emotional thing. It is the power of God's Word and the power of the truth of God to know Him and to experience His glory. And when we sing about His glory and we sing the songs that we sang this morning, come magnify the Lord with me, and we feel that begin to move our hearts, that is a very real experience. That's not our human emotions taking over. That is the power of the truth of who God is beginning to move our hearts. And there is a heart's response that results in a physical response. Notice what the next part is. This is their heart response. They bow themselves to the ground and worshiped. Do you know that that's almost a repetition? The word for worship means to bow down before in reverence. What are they doing? 
They are physically bowing down as they worship. They are worshiping as they worship. In other words, their physical response to God's presence and God's glory is an accurate reflection of what is truly in their heart. Now, we should never look around and try to judge if someone's worship is genuine or real. But we can look at ourselves, and we can examine ourselves and say, is what I am doing, is it genuine in my heart? Not to try to work something up in our heart that, that connects with what we're doing in the flesh, but that our, our physical response to God's presence is something that is true from within our heart. That's where worship starts. Our worship begins in our hearts as we bow in reverence. We sense that reverence before God. Our minds, we know who He is. It moves our hearts to reverence, and that is response is reflected in our physical response. They saw what God had done, and they understood that to be the power and the presence and the glory of God. There was a mental assent to it, a mental response that moved their hearts to worship, and as their hearts are worshiping, it was reflected in what their bodies did. Their whole being engaged in worship. I love that when there are times, there are times and and services and places of worship that I have been in which you were so, there was such volume and such loud expression of praise and worship to God. And it's a powerful experience. I remember standing in a group of people, several thousand people, standing together with a large choir and a full orchestra singing the song, How Great Thou Art. And let me tell you that it was not the number of people singing, though that added to it. It was not the talent of the choir or the talent of the orchestra. It was the truth of how great our God is, of how wonderful. And when you listen to the words of that song and you hear that word, those words of praise, and God begins to move your heart and your heart is filled with the glory and the greatness of God. And as that happens, there... There is a movement in our heart. God moves and blesses, and you feel that. I am not saved by my feelings. I do not know truth by my feelings, but I am thankful that God allows me to feel the truth, to know that it is true. I know and understand it from Scripture, but when God begins to move my heart, the joy and the passion for God's truth and for who God is, and that is what takes place here as they see the glory of God and they are moved to worship. That's exactly what it ought to do to us. Not to stand back as an observer and say, wow, that was a pretty big fire that fell there. Man, that sure burned up a few things. I hope it didn't get any of the priests while it fell. No, we don't just observe. We participate. We engage in this. The glory of God is not just something we think about and we talk about. It is something that we experience. And when we have truly experienced the glory of God, that is when we can endure because of the glory. And that is when we can begin to engage those around us with the glory of God. The experience of the glory involves our entire being. When the fire fell and the glory fills the house, when we're in the presence of God, will we simply be observers or will we be participants? Will we we be spectators or will we engage in worship? It is so easy for us 
to allow everything around us to keep us from worshiping God. But what a joy and a privilege and a blessing it is to come into his presence and experience him. He is real. How many of you believe that God is real this morning? Say amen. Amen. If he is real, and I don't say that as a question, I say that as the beginning of a statement of fact. (laughs) If God is real and he has saved us to be in relationship with him, then should not our relationship with him be just as real as it is with any physical human being that we see around us? Absolutely. And the relationships that we have with the people that we love the most, do we actually experience them for who they are? I certainly hope so. If God is real... And he has gone to the extent he has to bring us into relationship with him. How important should it be for us to also experience his presence and experience his glory? When preacher preached last week about the glory departing, when we've talked over these past weeks about the glory of God, This is not just some pie-in-the-sky kind of experience. This is not talking about human manipulation to try to get people stirred up. I suspect most of us have been in services where you could tell that they were trying to get people pumped up and stirred up and trying to stir emotions. I'm talking about when we begin to experience the reality of the God that is And he is a God who is near. He is not a God that is distant. He is a God who is near. A God who through the person of Jesus Christ has come to where we are so that we can be with him. He has has shielded. He has masked. He He has temporarily covered his glory so that we can stand to be in his presence. And he gives us what exactly we can stand and what we can experience. And we walk away with a yawn. We are in the presence of God. We are in the presence of his glory. And we need to experience it. Father, my heart's desire this morning is that we will not be mere observers. We will not just be spectators. We will be participants. When your glory fills this place, When we enter into your presence, may we not just observe, may we experience.